Writer, wit, activist, man of letters, Gore Vidal has died. He was 86. Vidal was at his core a writer. He published his first novel at the age of 19. It was a book about World War II. With his third novel, he ignited a firestorm of controversy because of its frank portrayal of homosexuality. That novel was dedicated to a man Vidal later described as the only person he ever loved. But it was 1948 when that book was published, and many people weren't ready to read about gay relationships in their literature. The book so offended the New York Times book critic, he promised not to review Vidal's next five books. So ever cocky, even as a young writer, Vidal responded by writing mystery novels under a pseudonym, Edgar Box. The proceeds from the sale of those novels sustained his writing career for a decade. In his time, he wrote under contract for MGM Studios, published several novels, of course, including Myra Breckenridge, Lincoln, Julian, and The Golden Age. He wrote screenplays and even appeared in small roles in several films. But for Vidal, his writing was visceral. The writer must always tell the truth, as he understands it. And a politician must never give the game away. So you've got, you know, two, two opposing... If you're a great self-publicist like Churchill, say, you can do both. But uh, for my kind of writing, no, because I really was made to be a novelist. When he wasn't writing, Gore Vidal was never too far from the TV. I never miss a chance to have sex or appear on television, one of his more memorable quotes. Here, too, his piercing intellect was on full display. He gets the flavor of that from the Dick Cavett show in 1971, a tense exchange with another literary titan, Novelist Norman Mailer. You know, the New Yorker Oh, once... I'm beginning to see what bothers you now. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm getting the point. Are, are you ready to apologize? <clears throat> I would apologize if, uh, if it hurts your feelings. Of course I would. No, it hurts my sense of intellectual pollution. Well, I must say, as, I mean, uh, uh, as an expert, you should know uh, about that. I would like to... <laughs> the argument reportedly continued off screen, and in the green room later, Mailer reportedly head-butted Vidal. And while they never came to blows, Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley maintained a very public feud for decades. It began in 1968 when they were asked to appear as political analysts on ABC. Disagreement became antipathy. Wary argument turned to open nastiness. They are talking about revolution. They are not talking about bloody civil war, as you would indicate. Yeah, yeah. Well, until you get the exact quote, you're well-known. All you do is violate the law. Your distortion. And and leave it to somebody else. It is no violation of the law to freely demonstrate, as you well know. Now, wait a minute. The law is not something that you make That battle continued even after Buckley's death in 2008, when Vidal's four-word obituary read, R.I.P. W.F.B. in hell. Vidal reserved some of his most acerbic comments for the political sphere. He believed in the vision of the founding fathers. He described himself as a conservative, but often supported Democratic candidates. His disdain for almost all politicians was clear. He once said, we should stop going around babbling about how we're the greatest democracy on earth when we're not even a democracy. We're a sort of militarized republic. And this resurfaced after 9-11, a fierce critic of U.S. foreign policy. He was one of President Bush's most contemptuous enemies. We've never had anything remotely like this in our history. He goes in, attacks two innocent countries, and uh, there goes Afghanistan, there goes Iraq, there goes their oil fields. Perhaps the source of Gore's cynicism about politics was his two failed bids to win political office. He ran for Congress in 1960, supported by Eleanor Roosevelt and actress Joanne Woodward. Vidal was briefly engaged to Woodward before she wed Paul Newman. The trio remained friends for the rest of their lives. And after a brief brief stint leading the People's Party in the early 1970s, Vidal ran for Senate in California. He lost to now-Governor Jerry Brown. 
In fact, Gore Vidal would be vaguely remembered as a failed politician or maybe a vitriolic public personality were it not for the strength of his writing. There are few American writers capable of that sweep and majesty married to scalding satire. Few who could capture the heavy significance of historic events while adding the brilliant sparkle of humor. I was born October 3rd, 1925, on the 25th birthday of Thomas Wolfe, the novelist, not the journalist. I have lived through three quarters of the 20th century and about one-third of the history of the United States of America. Briefly, what has been your impression thus far, Mr. Vidal, and eager interviewers are wont to ask? Well, it could have been worse. (laughs) I begin with a calculated understatement. Then the Japanese recording machine goes on the blink, and while the interviewer tries to fix it, he asks me to tell him off the record. What was Marilyn Monroe really like? Few embraced their place in American culture with such passion and relish. Gore Vidal, the ultimate man of letters, who once said, there's no human problem which could not be solved if people would simply do as I advise. Vidal died yesterday from complications of pneumonia. He was 86 years old. And joining us now, his friend, John Nichols, a writer for The Nation. John, thanks so much for being with us. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, although I would certainly uh, wish that Gore was around to, to listen to it at the least. <laughs> well, although he often wrote his own, uh, wrote about his own legacy and probably would have been the best obituary writer he could ask for. Oh, don't doubt that one may surface. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've been in uh, all, of, I think, most of Gore's homes, and... You know, the funny thing about it was that even in the very, very late stages of his life, when he had a lot of health problems, he was still a writer. And uh, he he was constantly dashing off bits and pieces of things. And the weird thing about Gore, or perhaps the, the most remarkable thing, is that he spoke in perfectly written pages. And so uh, those recordings of him, as you as you heard and as we heard just a moment ago, are just one example of what I think is going to be an incredibly rich legacy. Uh, you, know, you mentioned some of the shows in the 60s and 70s. A lot of people came to know him as a very regular guest on Johnny Carson's show. And if you can imagine, think about how America has changed, that someone uh, with the edge, with the character, and frankly with the intellect of Gore Vidal, was a regular guest on, you know, the nightly talk shows. One could be put off, though, if you, if you saw just his, his on-camera appearance. One could, one could wonder what he'd be like in real life if he was that acerbic when he was talking to you over the dinner table. What kind of friend was he? He could be that way. I mean, if he disagreed with you, you knew it immediately. But the fact is he's a wonderful friend, uh, very attentive, very caring, uh, extremely interested, and he had what I will describe as the best character in a friend, and that is an, a staggering memory. So when you would get together, sometimes having not seen each other for months, he would remember you know, exactly where the conversation broke off. And so we happen to talk politics a lot, because uh, though he wrote some of the greatest novels of all time, particularly Julian, which I think influenced uh, immense numbers of people around the world, uh, he loved politics. He adored uh, the debate. He adored the actual game of politics. And we had a conversation going on for the better part of 10 years about him running for president. And don't doubt that he really 
would have run for president if anybody had asked him. Despite the fact that he said anyone who, any man who is prepared to run for president isn't qualified to do so. Well, he thought there was an exception for him. <laughs> I, I think Gorbachev probably thought there was an exception for him for lots of things. We're talking about a man who, who gleefully said he thought we were watching the decline of the American civilization. Um, I wonder if it's fair to call Gorvidal a, a pessimist. I, no, I think it's not. Um, it is true that because of his amazing intellect and his remarkable delight in all things, he contained pessimism within him. Walt Whitman's line about uh, it containing multitudes sh- certainly applied to uh, Gore Vidal. But the truth is, in knowing him over the years, I came to see him as a great optimist. He believed in the American experiment to such an extent that he was still incredibly capable of getting angry about its missteps, of getting angry about when his country did the wrong thing. Uh, I happened to, I wrote a book a number of years ago about impeachment, the power of impeachment. He wrote the introduction to it, and he delighted in impeachment. He delighted in something that most people see as a uh, you know, great political crisis, because he saw it as one of those places where the people rise up and hold a leader to account. And so he was always believing in, always fascinated by uh, explosions of democracy. So much so that he at one point called for a new constitutional convention to fix the mistake of the found- mistakes of the founders. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and, you know, the funny thing is that if you know about the founders, you would know that they would have been right with him. Uh, the, the truth is that Jefferson suggested that the worst thing one generation could do to the next was to hand it a constitution and say, you must live by this. Gore Vidal really believed that. And one of the things that delighted him most was that in 1976, as the United States was marking the bicentennial, Time magazine put him in, on the cover uh, dressed in historic garb, you know, in a right. cartoon image. And he just thought that was fabulous. He liked he, he maybe had such a great ego, uh, certainly such a great intellect and personality, that he liked to imagine that he could have sat with Jefferson and Madison and the other founders and told them how to get it right. Did you say he maybe had such a great ego? No, he definitely had. I was just trying to think of what exactly it was that drove that sensibility. But in the end, John, I, I mean, I, my, I, I think he will... We remembered for his novels more than any other. I mean, would you agree? Maybe his essays as well, but certainly for his writing. Yes, it'll be for the writing. And remember that, that his novels were historic and political. Uh, and so we don't need to separate these things. He never did. Uh, he was always conscious that he was making statements about the world and about issues, uh, as you well illustrated in your introduction there, but also about his country. Some of his most successful novels were counterintuitive and contrarian examinations of American history. Books like Burr, where you take the guy that history had decided it hated and turn him into a fascinating and nuanced figure. That was what he did again and again and again. But a man, Gore Vidal, whom you're going to miss. Oh, I'm going to miss the hell out of him. He was, you know, the the truth of the matter is that uh, he taught me, and I think he taught an awfully lot of people uh, how, to, how to at least, in my case at least, try, in his case succeed, at writing a, a literary political journalism. John and, Nichols, a writer for The Nation, remembering author Gore Vidal, who died yesterday at the age of 86.
There's a lot going on right now. Mounting economic inequality, threats to democracy, environmental disaster, the sour stench of chaos in the air. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of WNYC's On the Media. Want to understand the reasons and the meanings of the narratives that led us here? And maybe how to head them off at the pass? That's On the Media's specialty. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts.